All right, well, uh, we're going to go ahead and continue on this Sunday in our, the last of the, of the seven in this series on the culture of Living Hope Family Church. And this morning, the, the focus of our topic this morning is, it's, is reproduction, multiplication, and the Great Commission. Because we are a church that aren't just satisfied with just showing up on Sunday morning and being entertained by the, the, the uh, semi-good preaching of Pastor Wayne. We're not here to just be entertained. We're not here to just go through a quick worship con- concert in the beginning and, and hear a quick message that gets us through our Sunday morning and uh, so we can feel better about ourselves for the rest of the week. But as a church, we want to reproduce. We want to make disciples. We want to multiply what we are so that we can have a greater sphere of influence and we can make a difference in this city. We want to fulfill the Great Commission, which wasn't just given to the disciples, but it was given to all of us to go out and make disciples. And the, the Bible says in, in uh, it's in, in I think it's tw- uh, Matthew 26, 19, it says that, uh, actually we'll know pretty soon, we're going to get to that scripture, but it says that we're going to uh, uh, go to make disciples of all the nations, not only the, the, both Jerusalem, but Judea and Samaria, and even to the remotest parts of the earth. That is our responsibility as a, as a church, as, a, as Christians. And that's definitely the culture that we're going to maintain and cultivate here at Living Hope Family Church. So the question that we have to ask is, what are we here for? Like I said, we don't want to be a church that's coming in to just be entertained on Sunday mornings or to fill up seats so we can feel good about ourselves. Oh yeah, the the church was full today. Aren't we awesome? Because that's not what it's about. What it's about is touching people in this community. We want to grow, not so that we can brag about how big of a church we are, but it means that we'll have more resources, we'll have more people, we'll have more ability to win people to the law, to win the loss to the Lord, to increase the kingdom of heaven, to build the church. See, the truth is, is that there's a world full of lost people in this society, and it almost seems like it's, it's getting worse and worse. Not the more being lost, but m- more people are becoming jaded to, to the love of God. They only believe in science. But the truth is, we have treasure in earthen vessels that we can offer to them. Many of them don't recognize that they even need it, but we have something that we can offer to them. And that's what our goal is. And we have to be careful that we're treating people in such a way, showing them that we have the love of Christ inside of us and it should be expressed towards them. Pastor Mike once said, if we say we want them to go to heaven, why do we treat them like they can go to hell? And we're like, man, we we don't do that. We don't do that. But think about it. If you look back, there are definitely times in our lives, even unintentionally, we probably could have done something a little better. We could have expressed the love of Christ a little better. You know, I definitely don't want to stand before the Lord one day and recognize if I had only done this, somebody else would have made it in. You see, we have a responsibility as the church. In Colossians 1.24, it says, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I do my share on behalf of his body. And this is Paul speaking. He says, and in my flesh I do my share on behalf of his body, which is the church, and filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. An oftentimes misunderstood verse. But the only thing that was lacking in Christ's affliction, it has nothing to do with salvation, it has nothing to do with uh, 
of having to, oh, if, if I do something really bad, then I have to, you know, I really have to make up for it. I want you to know that as far as sin is concerned, Christ's death was enough. The only thing that was lacking in Christ's afflictions is that he's not preaching the gospel. The only thing is lacking, and it's our responsibility, is to share that message, the message that he went and died on the cross so that we could be made brand new, that we could maybe be made pure and holy. That's what was missing in his affliction because he's not doing that. That job was left to us. If you go on our, our website, you'll see that uh, the motto on there is evangelize, equip, and empower. And that's exactly what we're going to be talking about today, the evangel- evangelizing is the part where we go out there and we tell people about Jesus. And we tell them how much God loves them and that Jesus died for them, that they can be made pure and that they only have to accept this free gift of salvation. That's evangelization. That's what we do when we we do these outreaches. That's our purpose is to meet people, to build relationships and to tell them about the love of Christ. To have the opportunity to minister to them and tell them that God loves them. But that's just step one. And unfortunately, I think a lot of happens in today's church is we stop at the evangelized part. We stop at the, the conversion part. Churches in the United States are very good at making converts. Very good at making converts. I mean, you'll hear about altar calls where thousands of people get saved, but none of them ever come back to church. Because the next part of this equation is we have to equip them. We have to teach them. We have to make them disciples. That's the the reproduction part. We want to reproduce people that will do the same thing as us. We want to equip them with the knowledge of Jesus Christ. We want to equip them with what they need to go out there and minister to other people. And then the third and final part is to empower them. And what that means is that once they've been evangelized, once they learn about the love of Christ and they give their life to the Lord, we then equip them, we train them and then finally, we empower them to go out there and make a difference. We, we send them out to do the very same things. And much the same way, when, when we do our outreaches and we, we give you the, the cards, Anna, whatever, we empower you to make a difference in people's lives, to, to reach out and love to them. You see, you come on Sunday mornings and you come on Wednesdays so you can learn the stuff that you need to learn. So that way, when you're empowered to speak to somebody, that you'll have the words to speak. Amen? You see, as a, as a church, our goal is to reach people, to introduce them to Jesus, to train and disciple them, and then finally to empower them to do the same. So in Matthew 28, 18 through 20, it says, this is the Great Commission. It says, and Jesus came up and spoke to them, saying, authority has been given me to me in heaven and on earth. Therefore, go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. I think I had the scripture wrong. I said, did I say 18? Dyslexic dyslexic in my head or something. Matthew 28 is the Great Commission. It says, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. You know, the first thing we need to notice in this scripture, it says, Jesus came and spoke to them and saying, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. We have to recognize that Jesus has the exact same authority that God has. It was given to him, all authority over heaven and earth. I want you to know this all part here is is very clear. It's all authority. There's not a part that's missing. Jesus has been given it all. And then he goes on and delegates it to us. 
You see, we recognize that Jesus gets his authority from God. Therefore, if Jesus gives that same authority to us, then there is no other person of power that has greater authority than us as well, when we operate in the name of Jesus. And because of that authority, Jesus commands us to go out and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I command you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Jesus is with us as we go out into the world. You see, Jesus exercised his authority when he was on earth to teach. He exercised his authority to heal, to cast out demons, even to forgive sins. And we have that same authority. And the forgiveness of sins part is not that we have the authority to, to forgive sins, but we have the authority to proclaim the forgiveness of sins. They have already been forgiven by Jesus, by what he did, but we have the authority to proclaim that forgiveness to every person who's lost that doesn't recognize it, that are feeling guilty and ashamed for the things that they've done, that they, they feel like there's no, no hope and there's a hole in their heart. We can proclaim the forgiveness of sins to them. Like I said, we're not called to make converts. We do new believers a great disservice if we just lead them to Jesus and leave them there. First off, the, the enemy is going to immediately begin to attack them. You'll notice that even in our, in our best effort, when we try to disciple, when we try to reach out, you've seen it even in this body, that the enemy still comes to attack. And even with our best effort to, to integrate them into to, to our body, to, to talk to them, to encourage them, the enemy still can pull them away. There's many people that aren't here this morning because the enemy is, is working in their lives, trying to keep them out because he knows that if they get invested, if they get involved, that he's powerless in their lives. We need to make sure that we're doing everything in our power to walk with these people that we've led to the Lord, to the Lord, to the Lord. <laughs> Praise God. We need to make disciples of them. We need to teach them. We need to equip them. We need to empower them. You know, at this point in the disciples' lives, The disciples must have thought that he's leaving forever. He gives them the great commission and finally he ascends onto heaven and, and they must have thought that he was gone, he was leaving them. But I think the greatest part is he reminds them is that he is with us. He says, lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. I want you to know that's good news in a believer's life. We're not doing this alone, but Jesus is right there beside us. Jesus said, apart from us, we could do nothing. But I want you to know, with him, we can do everything. And the truth is that this, this great commission wasn't just for the apostles. You know, there's, there's people out there that would argue that, oh, this, this was just for the apostles. This was just for the New Testament church. This isn't for us today. But I want you to know that if you look at the New Testament, we look at the book of Acts, which is, which is chronicling the history of the early church, we see that the people that were partaking in these things wasn't just the disciples. 
In Acts two through six, Acts six two through six, it says, "So the twelve summoned the congregation of the disciples and said, it is not desirable for us to neglect the word of God in order to serve tables. Therefore, brethren, select from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, whom we may put in charge of this task. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word." The statement found approval with the whole congregation, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte from Antioch and these they brought before the apostles and after praying they laid their hands on them see I brought this scripture up because I want you to know that these are a list of men particularly we're going to look at Stephen and Philip that weren't apostles they were in the church they were godly men they were brought before the apostles apostles to do the work that the apostles were required to do and the apostles were saying, you know what, we need to devote ourselves to the word of God and to prayer and to fasting. Let's find some great men of God to do these things. And these men were raised up to just be servants. They were there to serve the widows, to make sure that the, the, all the widows were getting their fair share of the food and none were being left out. See, this was them being trained. They were being brought into the fold. They were being walked with. But if we continue reading on in Acts 7-8, through 8, we says, The word of God kept on spreading, and the number of the disciples continued to increase greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many priests were becoming obedient to the faith. And Stephen, full of grace and power, was performing great wonders and signs among the people. You know, Stephen went from being just a person who helped serving food to someone who was preaching and performing great signs and miracles and wonders. He was performing the Great Commission. If we look in Acts 8, 4 through 6, it says, Therefore those who had been scattered went about preaching, to the, wor- preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria, Samaria and began proclaiming Christ to them. And the crowds with one accord were giving attention to what was said by Philip. And they heard and saw the signs which he was performing. Philip, once again, just a man that, that came up to just serve the widows. He must have, they must have thought that, man, this really isn't that great of a job. You know, this is just one step higher than the person that's cleaning the toilets and mopping the floors. But they went on, they served, they were trained, they were equipped. And then finally they were empowered to go make a difference of their own. See, Philip went out, and we find that Philip pretty much evangelized that area of Samaria by himself. Peter finally went down there later, and, and, and that's when he said, have, have you heard of the Holy Spirit? And they began being filled with the Spirit. But Philip went down there, and he evangelized that whole area. He planted churches. He was preaching. I want you to know if this was just for the apostles, we have a few people in the Bible that were acting out a turn, wouldn't you say? But the truth is, the Great Commission is for all of us and is all of our responsibility to make disciples of all the nations. And as a church, that is definitely part of who we are. It's one of our goals. That's actually the primary reason, the, the main reason that we do anything. You know, when we, when we do our our, uh, our outreach is the Easter egg hunt. We had a great time, and I think we all had fun, but the primary purpose was to meet people and eventually have the opportunity to lead them to the Lord. When we did our, our uh, Fall Festival Halloween outreach, the same thing. The purpose wasn't so we could just have a good time with the people around us, but that we could actually minister to them. The ultimate goal is always to lead people to the Lord. Even our, our Saturdays, when we have our, our barbecues on Saturdays, the ultimate goal even though it's a great time for us, the ultimate goal of that is to have an opportunity to invite people who wouldn't maybe normally come to church, but this would be a, uh, an opportunity for them to come and not feel as, as uh, uncomfortable or awkward. Maybe we can get to know them, build relationships. The ultimate goal of everything that we do 
is to have the outcome of people coming to the Lord. Next, I want to take a look at reproduction. This has always been God's plan. In Genesis 1, 11 through 13, it says, Then God said, Let the earth sprout vegetables, plants yielding seeds and fruit trees on the earth, bearing fruit after their kind with seed in them. And it was so. And the earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed after their kind, trees bearing fruit with seed in them and after their kind. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning a third day. And in Genesis 1, 24 through 25, it says, Then God said, Let the earth bring forth living creatures after their kind, cattle and creeping things and beasts of the earth after their kind. And it was so. God made the beasts of the earth after their kind, the cattle after their kind, and everything that creeps on the ground after its kind. And God saw that it was good. Reproduction has been a plan of God since the very beginning. You never see a pig that's going to give birth to a donkey. You never see a bird that's going to give birth to an alligator. It just doesn't make sense. We reproduce after our own kind. Just like humans reproduce little humans, that's the plan of God in the spiritual life as well. Luke 6.44 says, For each tree is known by its own fruit. For men do not gather figs from thorns, nor do they pick grapes from a briar bush. Even the fruit of our life is reproduced by us. You can see that in the lives of, of our children. Because how many of you know that your children are more like you than you want to admit? You see, the good things, we're all fine with that. You know, yeah, he's just like me. He's smart. He's, he's handsome. But then you begin to recognize, man, some of the, the stuff that I'm not so proud of that's being reproduced in him as well. You know, reproduction has always been the plan of God. We're supposed to reproduce. Even before the fall, reproduction was part of the plan. God speaking to Adam and Eve said, God blessed them and God said to them, to Adam and Eve, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, rule over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the sky, and every living thing that moves on the earth. This was before the fall. Humans were supposed to reproduce from the very beginning of like kind. And reproduction has always been the plan of God, whether we talk about animals or plants or even us. And spiritually it's the same as well. I still remember I went to a conference and, and Larry Neville's son, Pastor Larry Neville's son, was, was ministering. And he's a pastor now. And he's ministering on this and he said, you know what, the reason I'm a pastor is because my dad's a pastor. And this actually totally blew me away. Because it's actually not something you see all the time. I mean, there's actually a whole connotation of, you know, PKs, the preacher kids, they're worse than everybody else. But it's something I've noticed in, in Praise Chapel, it seems to be different. You know, both of Pastor Mike's sons are, are great men of God. They both love the Lord and have plans to serve them. And I hope that I'm reproducing the same in my children, if, that they're going to be raised up in the way they should go and not part from it. But I, all through Praise Chapel, I see these young men rising up to be pastors. And he said, you know why I'm a pastor? Because my dad's a pastor. If my dad was a mechanic, I'd probably be a mechanic. My dad was a doctor, I'd probably be a doctor, but my dad's a pastor. And I want to be just like my dad. His dad was reproduced in him. And the truth is, that's the way we need to be doing things as well. Reproducing like kinds. 
You know, if we want our, our kids to be worshipers, we need to be worshipers. If we want our kids to be givers, we need to be givers. If we want our kids to be compassionate, we need to be compassionate. Because they'll see what we do and the, that'll be reproduced in them. In 2 Timothy 2.2, 2, it says, The things which you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses entrust these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Timothy was a pastor, and he was being trained by Paul. He was one of the ones that was, was raised up by Paul to be a pastor. And Paul says to him, The things which you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses entrust these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. You see, even in this, this short sentence, this short scripture, we can see that Paul reproduced in Timothy the same thing that Paul was, but he's also instructing Timothy to reproduce in others. He says, entrust what I've taught you to those faithful men who will be able to teach others also. You see, the truth is that we're stewards of what God has given to us. And God has given us the gospel. And we're to entrust that and the truth is, it's our responsibility to guard. That's why he says here to, en- to entrust it to faithful men. He doesn't just say, just give it to them. He says to entrust it to them. You need to find faithful men to, to ensure that the message isn't being watered down, to ensure that the message isn't, been, isn't being corrupted. But we've been entrusted with the gospel. It's our responsibility to, to maintain it as it was given and give it to others to do the same. And the truth is, in order to teach something, you have to learn it. You know, that's the, the equipping part. You first, you first come to the Lord because someone evangelized you, but then you spend time being equipped. You spend time under teachers and learning the gospel, learning the word. And if you don't understand something, you ask questions to leaders who, are, who are, have more knowledge than you. And that never stops. You know, there's still stuff when I read the Bible, I'm like, man, I'm, I'm, I'm just not sure what's going on here. And I reach out to Pastor Mike and I, I say, can you help me? And there's still stuff that Pastor Mike sees every single day. Pastor Mike is one of the most, is the most knowledgeable man I know about the Scripture. What he's got, uh, got locked up in his head is amazing to me. Yet there's still, he still learns every single day when he, when he reads the Word. He has new revelation and he, he sees things that he's never seen before. You continue to learn your entire life. You continue to grow closer to God, to become wiser with the Gospel and have more knowledge of the Gospel. But one of the greatest ways to learn something is to begin to teach it. I remember when I was a, a, a trainer working at a, at a restaurant, I, I realized that and it's really been in anything I've ever done, I recognize that I don't really learn something the way I ought until I begin teaching others to do the same thing. Because you have to learn it then. You have to know what you're talking about. And you begin to, to know it in a much more detail than a different way than you ever have before. So let's, let's resolve as a church. Let's spend time to learn what we need to learn and begin to teach others the same so that they can be empowered to go out and do the exact same thing. Let's and trust what we have to faithful men who will be able to teach also. Proverbs, Proverbs 27.17 says, Iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another. You anybody know how uh, sharpening a knife works when you're using a stone? The whole reason it works is that you take a, 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 sh- a stone, a, a, sh- a sharpening stone, and it rubs off the dull bits. And a matter of fact, 
in this case, iron sharpens iron, they would take and rub iron together to begin to, to hone up the blade and make it razor sharp. And when they do that, it removes the dull bits, it removes the, the bad parts of the blade, and it's what's left is a razor sharp edge. And matter of fact, when you use a steel for, on a knife, you're not actually physically sharpening the knife, but what happens is, is the, the sharp edge of a knife blade will begin to microscopically fold over, and that's why it's dull, because now the sharp edge is folded off to the side. And you use a steel to rub that edge back out. And that's what sharpens the knife, because you get that sharp edge again. And the same thing happens in our lives when we work with other men of God. When we try to isolate ourselves from the church, from other men of God, we, we begin to get dull. Our, our blade begins to fold over. But when we work together, we encourage each other. We lift one another up. We study with one another. That's one man sharpening another. And then in Proverbs 13, 20, it says, He who walks with wise men will be wise, but the companion of fools will suffer harm. Like I said earlier, you recognize that reproduction happens whether you want it to or not. We need to be careful who we're spending our time with. And what I mean by that is not, uh, Paul even had to make it clear when he said, no, what I didn't say was don't spend time with the lost, with the sinners. We need to spend time with them, but in order to minister to them. The truth is we need to be careful who we're spending our time with and our, our leisure time, who we're hanging out with, who we're receiving stuff from. Because the truth is, even if you don't want to, you'll begin to receive stuff that you don't want. It says, he who walks with wise men will be wise, but the companion of fools will suffer harm. If you want to be a better teacher, hang out with other teachers. If you want to be a better evangelist, start walking and talking and learning from other evangelists. You want to be better at prayer? If you feel like you, you don't know how to pray, Spend time with people who pray. Come to the prayer meeting in the mornings. That's how you can learn how to pray. Because when you live, when you work with people, you walk beside people, you study with people, you pray with people, you learn with people, they begin to rub off on you as well. Iron sharpens iron. In 2 Corinthians 2.17, it says, For we are not like many peddling the word of God, but as from sincerity, but as from God we speak in Christ in the sight of God. Something else I want to point out is, and I, I'm, I loathe to use the word, but the product that we have is good. And I don't know a better word to explain it that doesn't make it sound so cheap because the word of God is not just some product. But to explain what I'm trying to say is that the product that we have is amazing. What we have to share is incredible. This treasure that we have is amazing. And we're not just, like he says here, we're not just peddling the word of God. You know, we're not out here just trying to, to, uh, to show something that's pretty cool so we can make a living. We're not out here trying to earn something. We're not trying out here to earn favor or earn prestige or, or earn honor. We're not trying to, to sell this so people will give more money to the church or we can buy nicer stuff. But the truth is, we, what we have from God is amazing. You know, we're not snake oil salesmen. We're not offering something that's not true. We're not offering a miracle or salvation when it's really just something weird in a bottle that doesn't do anything. You know, they used to have the snake oil salesmen would come around and they'd have plants in the audience and they would come up with their, you know, their medicinal compound and they'd have them drink and they'd come up limping and they'd begin to walk again. 
snake oil salesmen. They were, they were basically tricking people. That's not what we have. But we have something from sincerity, from God. We speak in Christ in the sight of God. Our motivation is to give life. Give the same gift that's been given to us. And like I said, our, for lack of a better term, our product is good. It is amazing. The treasure that we have is worth everything to these people. And the greatest part is, is they don't have to pay. There's no cost. There's nothing required. You just receive it freely as a gift. Amen? Oh, but it's not my calling. Evangelizing, preaching, it's not my calling. 2 Timothy 4.5 says, But you, this is Peter, or no, sorry, Paul, speaking to Timothy, he says, But you, be sober in all things, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, and fulfill your ministry. I mean, Timothy wasn't called to be an evangelist. Timothy was called to be a pastor. You know, I think that's one of our, our greatest, uh, one of the things that we like to argue the most is, oh, that's not my calling, I'm not going to do that. But the truth is, that sometimes you need to do it because it needs to be done. You know, Paul was telling Timothy to do the work of an evangelist. I recognize that you're not an evangelist, but you need to do the work of one. You need to minister to people. You need to touch people's lives. Even if we're not called to be evangelists, we still need to have soul winning at the core of all that we do. And as a church, it's at, the soul, it's at the core of all that we do, and individually it needs to be as well. When I used to work in, uh, and, and it was definitely worse in a restaurant because you have a lot of young people, and work, work ethic is, is uh, varied, to say the least. But I remember the frustration of asking people to help in a certain area, and they'd go, oh, it's not my job. Anybody ever had that? You need help with, oh, it's not my job. That's great. You want to help me anyway? We need to make sure we don't take that attitude with God. When we go, when we put stuff together, when we're going out to evangelize, we're going out to do ministry, we need to, and, and uh, I want you to know that nobody here has done that. And I, I, I'm thankful for that, but we still need to make sure that it's at the forefront of our mind that we never get into that attitude, but we're, we're always willing to go and say, yes, God, here I am, and not go, yeah, Lord, you didn't, you didn't call me to be an evangelist, so I'm not going to go out and do the outreach this week. And he tells him to be sober in all things and to endure hardship. What he's saying is that we need to take this seriously. We need to, to recognize that this isn't something that we can have a flippant attitude about, but it's something we need to take seriously. Evangelizing, enduring hardship, doing what must be done. So the the funny thing is American, the American version of hardship is a little bit different than I think what they had back then. And I know you guys have heard these before, but they're funny, so I'm going to read them again. But it says, The following comments were taken from registration sheets and a comment card returned to the staff of the Bridger, Montana wilderness area. And they put comment cards out there to see how they could make stuff better for these people out in the wilderness. You guys know what a wilderness area is? <laughs> to be defined as a wilderness area is different than just like, you know... Uh, Yosemite is not necessarily a wilderness area. That's a, that's a park. They've made that for people. A wilderness area, and there's some wilderness area even in Arizona. They're not maintained. They're not, they don't do anything with them. It's, it's just raw wilderness. But these people were visiting, and this is what they have to say. Trails need to be wider so people can walk holding hands. 
Robot trails need to be reconstructed. Please avoid, <laughs> please avoid building trails that go uphill. <laughs> Too many bugs and leeches and spiders and spider webs. Please spray the wilderness to rid of the area of these pests. I'm pretty much sure Michelle put that one in. <laughs> so easy to talk about her when she's not here. Praise God. Please pave the trails so that they can be plowed of snow during the winter. Chairlifts need to be in some places that we can get to wonderful views without having to hike them. The coyotes made too much noise last night and kept me awake. Please eradicate these annoying animals. A small deer came into my camp and stole my jar of pickles. Is there a way I can get reimbursed? <laughs> Reflectors need to be placed on trees every 50 feet so people can hike at night with flashlights. Escalators would help on steep uphill sections. <laughs> a McDonald's would be nice at the trailhead. <laughs> this is one of my favorite. The places where trails do not exist are not well marked. <laughs> and finally, they said there's too many rocks in the mountains. Yeah, definitely our idea of roughing it is a little bit different than back then. You know, I think today the most hardship-inducing thing most of us can think about is the internet went out. Cable's out. Life is so hard. And it's funny, because I look back, and there's still parts of me that do the same thing. We, we've had areas where the, the power goes out for hours every now and then up here. You know, and it's like, oh, it's so boring. There's nothing going on. It's so quiet. And it's so hot. It's terrible. Why can't the AC just come back on? That's me. I remember doing that. Man, it's miserable when the power goes out. But you think about it. It's really not. I mean, that's just normal living for some people. But us Americans. You see, you know what? Timothy had seen Paul go through some rough stuff. And Paul just wanted to encourage him to endure it, to keep sober, press on, keep moving forward. He even told, he told him in 2 Timothy 1.8, he said, Therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord or of me, his prisoner, but join with me in suffering for the gospel according to the power of God. You know, I don't think God wants you to suffer. But you know, I think he, he wants you to be willing to. How are we going to fulfill our ministry? Are we willing to endure what needs to be endured? You see, like I said, God doesn't want us to suffer, but sometimes we're going to come up against stuff. The enemy is going to attack, and we have to stand firm. Sometimes life is just going to attack. I guess attack's not the right word for it, but life happens. You know, the, the rain falls on the just and unjust alike. Sometimes people are going to be tough for us. It's not that God wants us these things, but we do need to be willing to endure, to press on, to be obedient, to move forward and not give up. Next, we want to make sure that we're planning churches. As, as a church, one of our greatest focus as we go on through the years, and I would really like, and it definitely depends on what God has for us, but I would love to have another church planted by our fifth year. That gives us four more to go. To start raising and training people up. But 
that's one of our primary focuses as a church. Is we want to plant churches. We want to send people out there to minister the gospel, to increase our sphere of influence. In Titus 1.5 it says, For this reason I left you in Crete, that you would set in order what remains and appoint elders in every city as I directed you. Titus was also a pastor under Paul's headship. And Paul was telling Titus that, yeah, stay here and get things going here and then start sending elders to other people to start their own churches. Just like he told Timothy, entrust this with faithful men who will go and teach others. Paul taught Titus to train other pastors and to send them out. Paul was reproducing and multiplying what he had. And the great thing about multiplication is is it's not just reproducing one other person, but in this case, Paul reproduced Titus and Timothy, who then went on to reproduce many others themselves. You know, Paul was able to make an impact, just one man, because he multiplied throughout many others. The truth is that we're going to reach far more people for the gospel by planting churches than just by having a church of 10,000. If we had 10,000 people in 1,000 churches, that'd be much more effective and we'd have a greater sphere of influence than 10,000 people in one church. Because the area of our influence, our community is only so big, but when we begin to spread that out across Arizona, across the Midwest, I mean, we're going to see amazing things happen. Things happen from small little churches like ours. We can make a difference, an even greater difference than some of the mega churches that are, that are around even today. It increases our reach, and it increases the amount of people's lives that we can touch. And that's our goal as a church, is to touch people's lives for the kingdom of heaven. You know, Praise Chapel refers to birthing churches much like birthing a child. And the reason for this is, is how many of you guys, when you had your first child, felt like you were ready? You had it all figured out. I don't think anybody, I mean, they don't come with a manual. And that's a fact. You learn as you go. By your, by your third one, you may be starting to figure some stuff out. But the same thing with planting churches. You're never going to be ready to head off on your own. I know I wasn't. I kept thinking, I just need more time to be ready, more time. I imagine if I would have sat under Pastor Mike for 30 years, at the end of 30 years, I'd have been like, just a little more time so I can be ready. The truth is, you're never going to feel ready. Much like having a child, you'll never be ready. And planning a church is the same thing. You just go out there and do it. and You, you, you learn as you go, and you just be obedient and faithful, and God will be there by you. This church here is living proof of that. When we opened our doors, wondering if anybody was going to show up. Yet we've had a solid foundation the entire time we've been open, because... I don't know what I, I didn't know what I was doing. I was doing the best that I could. I'm going to get there and preach and tell them about Jesus, and we're going to move forward. And that's what's happened. And God has been faithful. And hopefully, the next one we start will be a little bit easier. As we send somebody out, we can, you know, and, and plant wisdom in their lives, so things might be a little bit easier for them. And as we go, it'll continue to do these things, but we'll have a greater impact as we move forward. Because the church is the pillar and support of the truth. The church is what it's about. In reaching people. In 1 Timothy 3, 14-15 it says, I am writing these things to you, hoping to come to you before long. 
But in case I am delayed I, delayed, delayed, I write so that you will know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and support of the truth. You know, Timothy would have understood these references to pillars because the great temple of Diana, which was in Ephesus, was where he was at, had 127 pillars that held up the temple. You know, these pillars were what support, especially in those days, was what supported the buildings. If you knocked out the build pillars, the buildings would fall down. And the same thing, the church is like that for the gospel. It's the pillar in support of the truth. And the reason being is because church is where people are loved. Church is where people are equipped. It's where they learn. It's where they learn about the truth. It's where the truth is sent from. The church is the plan. Of, the church is the bride of Christ. And it's the plan of God to reach this, this lost and dying world. It's through the church, through each and every one of us who make up the church. It's where they come to learn the truth and not some watered-down, peddled version of it, but the truth of God, the gospel. If we learn about Jesus, who is the truth and the life. Mary Lefkowitz, is a professor at Wesley College, said this. She said, The notion that there are many truths might seem well-suited to a diverse society. Sound familiar to anybody in today's day and age? My truth is different than your truth. She says, The notion that there are many truths might seem well-suited to diverse society, but when everyone is free to define truth as he or she prefers, as at present, the result is an intellectual and moral shouting match in which the people with the loudest voices are most likely to be heard. And in today's society, typically not the majority. It's the vocal minority that's trying to define truth. But the fact of the matter is, is that the gospel is the truth. Jesus is the truth. The word of God is the truth. And anything that contradicts that is not the truth. In 2 Corinthians 10, 12-15, it says, For we are not bold to class or compare ourselves with some of those who commended them, commend themselves, but when they measure themselves by themselves and compare themselves with themselves, they are without understanding. But we will not boast beyond our measure, but within the measure of the sphere which God apportioned to us as a measure to reach even as far as you. For we are not overextending ourselves as if we did not reach to you. For we were the first to come, even as far as you, in the gospel of Christ. Not boasting beyond our measure, that is, in other men's labors, but with the hope that as our faith grows, we will be, within our sphere, enlarged even more by you. See, the first thing we can learn from this scripture is that we're not doing this to compete with others. We're not trying to see if we can outdo the church down the street. The fact of the matter is, is we want to encourage and pray for and lift up every life-giving church in this city. And it makes no matter to me that if somebody is going to another life-giving church or whether they're coming here because our ultimate goal is not to be the biggest church in town, but to see people come to the Lord. If because at one of our outreaches, people begin to say, that, hey, you know what, there's this little church here and they, I see the love of Christ in them. Maybe there's something more to it but I don't really want to go to that church. They're kind of small and in some guy's house. But maybe, maybe because of this, maybe because if we touch them, they go to a different church and come to know the Lord. That's a success. That's a seed that was planted. And the truth is, that's still credited to our account. And God will honor us for it. 
That's also why we're not trying to steal people from other churches. If somebody is currently attending another church regularly, they belong to another church, then before they were to join us, they need to be released. Because we're not looking for church hoppers. We're not looking for people that were going somewhere. That's not how we're going to grow and increase our sphere of influence is by, by skimming off the top of other churches. Our goal is to increase our sphere of influence. You know, this whole <clears throat> measure themselves, buy themselves, compare themselves, this whole, this whole speech here is basically saying that we measure ourselves by what God has given us to do, not by what other people are doing. You know, when we look at the church down the street and they're doing super well, they're getting all these new people, we don't have to go, Man, what are we doing wrong? What, how come we're not doing the same thing? Because we don't measure ourselves by what other people are doing but what God has given us to do. Are we doing with what we have what God asked us to do? And I believe as a church we are. We're continuing to move forward. We're being faithful. We're being obedient. And I thank God that, that He is faithful to us. And finally, when we reach others, when we plant churches, our sphere of influence is effectively larger. He says, but our hope is that as your faith grows, we will be within our sphere enlarged even more by you. What he's saying is, is that there's people that he won't reach, but people that he's ministered to will. Just like as we hear, there's, there's people that, George, you tell me he's talked to people at Walmart and you're talking to them, inviting them to church. Those are people that I probably won't reach because you had the opportunity to speak to them. I didn't. And I want you to know, as Living Hope Family Church in Tucson has planted us out here, we've effectively increased their sphere of influence because they are multiplying through us. And we're going to reach people that they never could because they're 45 minutes away. And the same is going to continue to go as we meet people, as we, we, they, they join us and they grow with us, as we plan out churches, our sphere of influence will continue to grow and we'll be able to reach more and more people for this city for this state, for this country, and even for this world. We look at Praise Chapel, which is a, an incredible example of that, as they, they went from one fellowship to multiple fellowships because of the, there's so many churches that are being planted. Pastor Neville, when he planted that church, his sphere of influence, even though he's passed away now, but his sphere of influence has been growing ever since, and, and he's still making an impact in California. And even now as they're, they're reaching out into Arizona and we've partnered with them, that's going to continue to grow. And I thank God that, that we were able to reproduce and multiply and reach that many people. That people are going to come to know the Lord because we were faithful and obedient to the calling God had in our lives. You see, Jesus is our template for this as well. This reproducing, this evangelizing, equipping, empowering, reproducing, and multiplying. Jesus is the one that set the template up. He, he's the one that showed us how to do it. In Matthew 4, 18-22, it says, Now as Jesus was walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea. For they were fishermen. And he said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. Going on from there, he saw two brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets, and he called to them. Immediately, immediately they left their boat and their father, and they followed him. Jesus was out evangelizing. Jesus went out, 
And he was looking for men to invest in. And how many know that, that uh, he didn't walk up to him and say, hey, follow me, and just leave him there? He said, let me tell you about myself, and then just left him there. But no, he said, follow me, and they walked with him, and he discipled these men. And then he began to even express to them right from the beginning that he was going to teach them to do the same thing. You see, Jesus was a fisherman of men, and he was training them to be fishermen of men as well, fishers of men as well. And you know, Jesus preached to the multitude. He cared about them. He loved them. And they were his purpose. Jesus came for the multitude. But he invested in the twelve. He spent time with the twelve. He discipled the twelve. He spoke parables to the crowds, but he explained them to his disciples. And because of this, Jesus' sphere of influence increased. As they, even after he went to be with God, they were the ones who began planting churches and spreading out. If we continue on, we can see the plan in action. In John 1, 40-42, it says, And one of the two who heard John speak and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. And he found first his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which translated means Christ, and he brought him to Jesus. And Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which is translated Peter. The first thing that, that Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, did was go tell his brother. He began fishing for men right off the bat. The plan is in action. Jesus goes to Andrew, then Andrew goes to Simon. And then we find that they did as he did. In Matthew 10.1, Jesus summoned his twelve disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. You see, after Jesus found them, he evangelized and found them, which would be our, our equivalent today is, is evangelism. Then he equipped them, he trained them, he walked with them and discipled them, which is our second part, equip. And then he empowered them, he sent them out. You see, these, these men were not career students. They haven't been doing this their whole life, but they walked with Jesus for a short amount of time. They probably didn't feel like they were ready. But Jesus sent them out. And empowered them to do the same. He gave them the authority that was given to him the same as Jesus has given us authority to do the same as well. And the truth is sometimes it's tough going out. Sometimes it's tough to do these things. You know, all the disciples, as they were found, they left good jobs. They left their family. Peter left his wife to go follow Jesus. Not left her like permanently, but left her at home. But he, he went with Jesus. And that had to have been tough. Michelle and I did the very same thing. We packed up and left everybody we knew in, in, in Tucson. And I granted it's not that far away, but we moved out here to where we knew nobody. It was tough. But it was definitely worth it. For a lot of reasons. One, I made some great friends out here. People that I would have never met otherwise. And I'm so blessed by all of you. And also, as I see everybody grow, my heart is gladdened. And as I see the church growing, it just makes me excited. And the plans that God has for us just makes me want to jump up and down for joy. I'm so excited to see what God's going to be doing through us and everybody in this room. But it was still tough. And the truth is, 
We're going to have some tough parts coming up. But just like Paul told Titus that we need to be ready to endure hardship, and we're going to make it through, and God's going to use us to do incredible things. You see, in Matthew 9, 36-38, it says this, Seeing the people, he felt compassion for them because they were distressed and dispirited like sheep without a shepherd. And then he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Therefore, beseech the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest. When we look out upon the world today, we're seeing the same thing. As, as society is, just feels like it's crumbling around us, what we're looking at is, is people that are distressed and dispirited like sheep without a shepherd. And like Jesus, we should feel compassion for them. Not judge them or put them down, but feel compassion for them and a genuine love for them, the same love that Jesus had. But then he goes on to say, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Anybody ever felt like the harvest is not plentiful? I have. I've gone to talk to people. And people don't want to have nothing to do with me. They don't want to talk. And I'm like, man, Jesus said the harvest is plentiful, but it sure doesn't feel like it. It feels like there's like one person that wants to get saved and somebody already talked to him. So I, I missed out. They got him saved and not me. But then I'm always reminded that there was a long time when I didn't want to hear about it either. But someone finally came up to me and I finally listened. And I finally gave my life to the Lord. See, I was ripe and ready to harvest as well, but I just kept pushing people away. And I think the same goes right now. There's the, the harvest is plentiful, and we're going to continue to go out in the field. And then the, the, Jesus said, pray to God. Beseech the Lord of the harvest that, that workers would be sent out into the harvest, sent out into the field. And we need to be praying that, that God would send us people that would co-labor with us. Remember that when we pray for workers, that you might be the answer to your own prayer. Matter of fact, I guarantee you, if, if you pray for workers, you're the answer to your prayer to start with. So just know, you pray that prayer, be ready to go to work. Put some gardening gloves on, you've got work to do. <clears throat> Acts 1.8, it says, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria, and even to the remotest part of the earth. You see, a witness is someone who recounts what they've seen. In the court of law, they provide the proof to the court of law, the evidence of something that happened. You know, people, if nobody sees somebody do it in a court of law, they can't be, they can't be held accountable because no one can prove they did it. But a witness says, no, this is true. This is what happened. I saw it. And we're like that for Jesus. We're a witness for him. We're a witness that he is good. We're a witness that He saves us, that He loves, that He cares. And the truth is, there's nothing bad enough in you that these things don't apply to you. That's what we're a witness to. No matter, we're a witness to people saying, no matter how bad you are, no matter how much you've messed up, no matter what you've done, done He still cares for you. He still loves you. And He's still willing to save you if you'll just receive that free gift. You see, Jerusalem, for them, was their hometown. For us, that's Marana. Marana is our Jerusalem. And Judea and Samaria was the, the outlying regions. That was, for us, it would be like Arizona or even the United States. And the remotest part of the earth, well, that's just everywhere else. It kind of covers everything. 
You know, the truth is, we may not personally touch all of these areas. But the question is, will our sphere of influence? We may not be able to personally do it. But by reproducing and multiplying, we'll definitely be involved in touching this entire world. The last scripture we want to look at today is Romans 10, 11 through 15. It says, For the scripture says, Whoever believes in him will not be disappointed. That's good news, ain't it? For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, abounding in riches for all who call on him. For whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him whom they have not believed? How will they believe in him whom they have not heard? How will they hear without a preacher? How will they preach unless they are sent? Just as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news of good things. You know, there's a world of people out there that that need hope, they need love, they need salvation. And we have the answer for them. We are the feet of those who bring good news. And the truth is that when we can minister into their lives, they will be blessed, but we will also be blessed as well. You know, this is a, just one of those so simple yet profound questions that's being asked. How will they call on Him in whom they have not believed? How will they believe in Him whom they have not heard? How will they hear without a preacher? And how will they preach unless they are sent? That's the question that's being asked for us. And that's where reproducing and multiplying answers those questions. Because we're going to to send people. We're going to reproduce preachers and teachers and pastors and apostles. We're going to train them up. We're going to equip them. And we're going to send them out so that people can hear the good news. Amen? Amen. Let's go and stand on our feet and pray.